today we start a brand new series in the New Testament letter of 1 Thessalonians that's going to carry us all the way through to the summer. Now, it's always good in the first one in the series to try to get to grips with a little bit of the background. And so, very quickly, let me begin by giving you a little bit of the context of this letter. I want you to transport yourselves back to the middle of the first century. There's this Jewish rabbi turned follower of Jesus traveling all over the Mediterranean. His name was Paul. He was literally walking all through the Roman Empire, going from city to city to city, preaching the gospel that Jesus of Nazareth is raised from the dead. Now, just so you know, back in the first century, unlike today, gospel wasn't a religious word. No, it, it was a very political word. In the Roman Empire, whenever a new Caesar came to power, Rome would send out a preacher to every single city in the known world with a gospel or a message of good news. And usually it would sound something like this. Caesar Augustus has brought an end to the civil war. He has defeated Mark Antony. He has brought peace to the entire empire. He has set into motion a new era of human history marked by Pax Romana or the peace of Rome. Give him your allegiance. Give him your worship because Caesar is Lord. That is basically what the gospel sounded like back in Paul's day. But Paul is going around preaching a very different gospel. His version is that Jesus is the world's true Lord, that he defeated evil and death itself through his death, his burial, his resurrection, that he set into motion a new era of human history, a brand new reality that he called the kingdom of God. This reality where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, where heaven and earth collide into one, where justice and peace and healing and salvation are very much the new normal. This was an incredibly provocative and dangerous message that, if truth be told, got Paul into all kinds of trouble. Now, all that being said, one night, Paul gets this vision from God where a man from Macedonia calls out to him, pleading with him to come over to Macedonia to help. And so, to cut a long story short, Paul takes his co-worker Silas and Timothy, his young protege, and crosses over the Aegean Sea to northern Greece. And the first thing they do, as was his wont, is plant a church uh, in this city called Philippi. Next stop is the city of Thessalonica. Thessalonica was the capital of Macedonia. Even today, it's the second most important city in all of Greece. In those days, it was a key harbour in the Roman trading route to the east, and it was incredibly cosmopolitan. It was this real melting pot of nationalities and religions. Now, Paul's not there very long. Maybe 
just a matter of weeks, certainly no more than a few months. But in that time, he starts a church which initially goes really well. If you read the account in Acts chapter 17, you'll see that there were Greeks, there were Jews, uh, there were some leading prominent women from the community. It was a pretty diverse church that was growing fast. But then persecution strikes. And Paul is chased out of town for preaching this gospel that Jesus is Lord and therefore Caesar isn't. And so, just like that, the founder and leader of the church is taken away. Can you imagine the shock, the confusion, that the whole swirl of different emotions that must have been going on there? Now remember, this was the first century, so there were no phones, there was no internet, and really Paul had no idea then of what happened to the Thessalonian church after he had gone. Like, are they still following Jesus or not? I mean, he left in such a hurry, he's concerned the work there may have crumbled and died. And so he, after a while, sends Timothy to go back and check what's happened. Several months later, Timothy returns with news, on the back of which, about a year after Paul last saw them, he writes the first of two letters to the Thessalonians. Now, given the circumstances, I don't know what you're expecting. Given the suffering that they've been through, they're in forced separation from Paul, I'm kind of imagining that the church is probably going to be in a little bit of trouble. It's maybe even hanging by a thread, if there's anything left at all. Well, let's find out. Chapter 1, verse 1. This letter is from Paul, Silas and Timothy. Now, just to say, this letter, as far as we know, is the first writing in all of the New Testament. In case you weren't aware, the New Testament isn't in chronological order and so although the gospels Matthew Mark Luke and John that they speak of events that occurred earlier they weren't actually written uh, until a number of years later and it's thought that this letter to the Thessalonians was written earlier than all of the other New Testament books let's keep reading second half of verse one we are writing to the church in Thessalonica to you who belong to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May God give you grace and peace. We always thank God for all of you and pray for you constantly. As we pray to our God and Father about you, we think of your faithful work, your loving deeds and the enduring hope you have because of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know, dear brothers and sisters, that God loves you and has chosen you to be his own people. For when we brought you the good news, it was not only with words, but also with power. For the Holy Spirit gave you full assurance that what we said was true. And you know of our concern for you from the way we lived when we were with you. So you received the message with joy from the Holy Spirit, in spite of the severe suffering it brought you. In this way, you imitated both us and the Lord. 
as a result, you have become an example to all the believers in Greece throughout both Macedonia and Achaia. And now the word of the Lord is ringing out from you to people everywhere, even beyond Macedonia and Achaia. Wherever we go, we find people telling us about your faith in God. We don't need to tell them about it, for they keep talking about the wonderful welcome you gave us and how you turned away from idols to serve the living and true God. And they speak of how you were looking forward to the coming of God's Son from heaven, Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. He is the one who has rescued us from the terrors of the coming judgment. I don't know what you think, but I think we've just got to conclude that that is remarkable. Remember, they've had a pretty traumatic year, every bit as traumatic as the year we've just had. So, uh, for starters, I think we can feel a little bit of affinity with them. And you know what? I think we can be heartened and provoked and instructed by some of the one year in strengths that the Thessalonians clearly had. Now, if you're familiar with Paul's letters, you'll know that it's usual for Paul to start with a paragraph of thankfulness. But what we've just read here is an entire chapter of thanksgiving, which actually spills over into the next two chapters as well. It's the most positive, the most upbeat, the most thankful of all Paul's letters. He, he's basically encouraging them. He's saying, you're doing great. Well done. Don't stop. Keep going. Now, rest assured. We'll come back and look at these verses we've just read in a little more depth over the next few weeks. But in the meantime, I want to give you a spot of homework. Why don't you read this letter through over the next few days? It'll probably take a quarter of an hour or so, so not long. Just read it all the way through. And as you read it, I'd like you to jot down all the reasons you can find for Paul's thankfulness for them. What, what commendable strengths or characteristics do you see Paul refer to in this letter? Just jot them all down. And to provide a bit of motivation, and perhaps to appeal to any competitive types out there, if you send your list to hello at churchcentral.org.uk by the close of play on Tuesday, in return, I will send you a copy of this book on how to pray by Pete Gregg, the person who comes up with the longest list of commendable strengths that come from this letter to the Thessalonians. Uh, just to be clear, uh, I uh, reserve the right to chalk off any tenuous ones uh, just to make it fair for everyone. So the longest list by the close of Play on Tuesday will get a free copy of this book from me. Now, all that to say, like Paul with the Thessalonians, I am so incredibly thankful to God for this church. I tell you, I love the way we've together taken seriously that the call to dig deep into community over the last year, even though, let's be honest, it hasn't been without its challenges, has it? 
Now, I love the adaptability and the flexibility and the creativity that we have among us. I so appreciate the generosity, the encouragement, the genuine care that there is towards one another here. Now, I'm thankful for your courage, your bravery, your determination to keep overcoming challenges. And I'm thankful for the way that you gather around and support those who perhaps aren't finding it so easy to keep enduring. I thank God for your faithfulness, your steadfastness, your ongoing commitment, and the many different ways you serve so selflessly. I am so incredibly thankful for this family. And so, just to be clear, this series isn't intended to correct or put right any faults that we see in the church here. View it more as an encouragement to keep going and a reminder of what we believe and an aid to keep our perspective right. So, all that being said, that's a bit of the background and some of the reasons why we're doing this series. For the next five minutes or so, I want to finish off by returning to verse 2, where Paul gives us what I think is a really helpful insight into how to go about navigating all the different joys and all the different pains that we experience in life without losing sight of God, which kind of feels pretty relevant right now. So here's what he says, verse 2. We always thank God for all of you and pray for you constantly. So, how did Paul keep his focus on God through all the different highs and lows of life? He was always thanking and constantly praying. These words, always, constantly, that they speak of an ongoing, habitual, rhythmic way of living. It's like Paul had developed this ongoing, rhythmic pattern of thankfulness and of prayer. Now, essentially, you think about it, thankfulness is kind of about what is right with the world. Everything that's good and beautiful and true. And prayer is about all that's wrong in the world. Everything you want God to change and to fix and to heal and to set right. And Paul seems to have found this way of going through life and and turning absolutely everything, whether good or bad, back to God, either in prayer or praise. Which, let's be honest, is easier said than done, isn't it? I mean, I think we all know this tension, don't we, between what's right in the world and what's yet to be made right. But maybe, perhaps, possibly, we're not quite so good at acknowledging that everything good in our lives comes from God and giving thanks to him for it. Instead, I think at least some of the time we live with this sense of entitlement or a kind of misplaced pride that everything we've got is down to us. And so... We're not as quick to credit God as maybe we should be. And then on the occasions where we're faced with problems, with suffering, with pain, we we either try to solve it or control it in our own strength, which 
don't need me to tell you, just ends up pretty exhausting. Or we can have a tendency to grow discouraged or bitter or cynical or simply resign to things staying as they are and so we're tempted just to give up. It's like we can view the world through the lens of ourselves and when we do that we end up swinging between pride and hopelessness. But what Paul is showing us here is that there's a different way to live. There's a way to view life through the lens of relationship with God that instead of entitlement and pride, there's praise and gratitude. And in place of self-reliance and hopelessness, there's dependence and hope expressed through prayer. Which is pretty incredible when you think about it, isn't it? I mean, if you know Paul's story, you know he had more to boast about than most and at the same time, his life was anything but easy. And yet, he was able to see the world in such a way as he never, ever ran out of stuff to thank God for. And he also found a way of drawing strength from God, so he never stopped persevering, despite being beaten up and flogged and shipwrecked and falsely accused and imprisoned, even being bitten by a deadly snake and uh, on a number of occasions being ostracised by his former friends. Through, through times of extreme pain and extreme joy, his habit of always giving thanks and constantly praying ensured his focus remained unflinchingly on God. And I think there lies the secret of navigating the pretty extreme circumstances that we find ourselves in right now. If we could just find a way to train ourselves to respond to everything good in our life and this world with praise to God and everything wrong in our life and this world with prayer, then I suggest it would give us a framework to persevere through whatever life throws at us with courage, with joy, with hope, with faith and with peace. Now, just to be transparent with you, here's where this lands for me. I'm a perfectionist and I'm hardwired to see everything that is wrong. Uh, I, I just naturally see all the faults, all the things that could be better pretty much all of the time. I tell you, it is hard work being a perfectionist. It's even harder being married to one. So whatever you do, please keep praying for Helen. <laughs> it's like the, the way my brain works is to see all the things that are wrong and could be improved. And so what God's had to do with me is slowly but surely help me relearn how to think and how to feel and how to see. And if truth be told, it's not been as quick a process as I would have liked. It's been a pretty gradual journey. But the more that I follow Jesus and the more that I see him, the more my eyes are open to see evidence of his grace all around me. Where, where my natural tendency is to just keep seeing all that's wrong with the world, uh, I'm learning slowly but surely to see what is right and to celebrate it as an act 
of worship to more and more live with this attitude of gratitude now the other piece in all of this for me is that as well as being a perfectionist i'm also extremely impatient and so where i see things that are wrong or where progress is slow and things don't seem to be changing fast enough i quickly grow tired of waiting Uh, my constant temptation is to give up or walk away or become frustrated and discouraged and so for me a big part of this is the challenge to be quick to turn my impatience into prayer and to keep persevering in prayer until God changes either the situation or changes me how about you where does this land for you? Well, here are a few questions to help you out. Here are a few questions to help you gauge how you're wired. Do you find it easier to spot what's right or what's wrong with the world? Do you live with a sense of entitlement or gratitude? Do you find yourself tending more towards grumbling or praying? Do you think, see things solely from your own perspective? Or are you quick to view things through the lens of relationship with God? What would it look like to retrain yourself towards a posture of gratitude, to be quick to give thanks to God? And how can you develop a rhythm of turning what's wrong into prayer? All that to say, my prayer is that through all of this, God would encourage you. If you're discouraged right now, my appeal to you would be, do not give up. Keep going, keep enduring, keep clinging to God. And know that your endurance will result in much thanksgiving. And ultimately, it has the potential to cause the word of the Lord, the gospel, to ring out to people everywhere. As we're going to keep seeing and coming back to as we work our way through this letter to the Thessalonians. And so, may you be encouraged and may God bless you richly as you seek to apply this message.